Well, good morning, everyone. It has been an encouragement to get to be here with you today. One, just for beautiful weather, right? It's starting to feel like springtime. It's fun to be outside. Um, but also just getting to, to celebrate baptism. And again, see the, the external symbol of the internal reality. Uh, the miracle that has taken place in Savannah's life. Uh, that once dead in her sins, the Holy Spirit has worked on her heart and shown her the light of the glory of the gospel. And she has placed her faith in Christ. That, that is something to celebrate. So I'm thankful to, to be here getting to worship um, and be encouraged by all of you. Today we are continuing our series through, through the book of Philippians. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we're, um, we've made it to Philippians 2 now. So we're out of Philippians 1. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one right in the pew in front of you. Uh, we'd love for you to, to follow along with us. Today we're going to be in verses two, or excuse me, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, but also looking at a couple surrounding verses. Again, so if you have your Bible, I think it'll be helpful to follow along as we're looking around. Last week, Heath led us um, through Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30, and he really kicked off a bigger section of Philippians that stretches from uh, verse 27 of chapter 1 all the way to verse 18 in chapter 2. And the, the main point that Paul is writing about, it's also the main point that Heath left you with last week, that as believers, we want to live lives that are in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So over the next weeks, we're going to be talking about what does that look like? How do we live in ways that are worthy of the gospel of Christ? And so from, from Heath's passage, again, if you have Philippians open, verse 27, the first thing was that as believers, the life worthy of the gospel of Christ is a life of unity. We stand together, we're firm, we strive side by side. Secondly, then, in verses 28 through 30, a life worthy of the gospel is one that stands resolute and firm in the face of opposition and persecution. And today, in our passage, we will see that the life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ is one of humility. And we're going to be looking to Christ's example and seeking to follow what he has done. And this, this life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, it is a, it's a weighty call, right? It's the upward call of Christ. It's hard. It seems intimidating to, to always strive for unity, to stand firm in the face of opposition, to continually live lives of humble servitude. And in our own strength, we can't do that. But today, by looking at Christ's example, one of humility, we will also look at his example of exaltation. And the promise, the hope of future glory gives us strength and energy to continue to strive side by side to live in manners worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's our aim. That's our goal. And so today, as we're thinking about humility, the big idea that I want you to live with, leave with and live with is that Christian humility leads to God-glorifying exaltation. I say Christian humility because our humility isn't just um, putting ourselves down. Our humility is following Christ's example. 
And then I mention this exaltation because, again, this, this hope of future glory sustains us when life gets hard. This hope is a great motivation for us to continue to strive side by side, fellow believers. So again, Christian humility leads to God-glorifying exaltation. Let's go ahead and uh, read our passage, and then we'll pray and dive in. So Philippians 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 4. Paul is writing and he says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we continue in worship, God, by opening your word, would you open our eyes that we might see and behold wonderful things from your law? Lord, would would we follow Christ's example by considering others' needs above our own? seeking to serve one another, striving after this, Lord, together. Would you fill us with joy, with love for one another, and a love for the lost that motivates action in our lives? Amen. Alrighty, so Paul, right, he opens this section with a couple if statements. If there's encouragement, if comfort, if participation in the Spirit, if any affection or sympathy... And it's worth noting that these are not conditional questions, right? He's not saying, hey, if you went to Clemson, you wear orange. If you went to South Carolina, you wear garnet and black. They're really rhetorical questions that are all-encompassing for believers. It's more like saying, hey, if you were breathing, if you woke up this morning, if you have seen this sun on a beautiful day, then give glory to God and thank him. Right, Paul, what he's doing is he's drawing our attention to some treasures that we have in union with Christ. And as he is pointing to what is true as a believer, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then from that, from what's true, then he begins to teach you how we then should live. This is often how Paul writes. Right? He first prays for a church, and then he magnifies and highlights the gospel or Jesus And based on what is true in Christ, then that dictates how we live. He doesn't send a checklist for people to do. He shows what is true in Christ and how then should we live. And he uses these these rhetorical questions to draw attention to something. We can so easily become inwardly focused. But Paul, with these questions, is pointing that we have treasures experienced in relationship with each member of the Trinity, as well as with other believers. The first thing that he points to is he's saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, really, since you have encouragement in Christ. And and what is this encouragement that he has in mind, right? Jesus loves you. That's encouraging. Jesus is described as our great high priest who intercedes for us. That's an encouragement. 
We have the words of our Savior here who helps guide us in our life. That's an encouragement. But what is Paul thinking? Right? When we want to understand a text, we want to think, what was the author's intent for the original readers? So what is he getting across? What does he want the Philippians to find encouragement in because of Christ? And what he is saying, what I believe, is that we can have encouragement with Christ because he can relate to us in our sufferings and persecutions. I say this because of the immediate context. Verses 28 through 30 of chapter 1 are all saying that we can stand firm as believers in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution. Follow Paul's example, stand firm in the gospel. And the next thing he says of, you have encouragement in Christ. Right, Christ has gone through sufferings. He can relate to us in difficult situations. And doesn't it help to have someone with you in suffering? Right, whether it's, it's one of those stories where you went with, through with someone, like a cold camping trip or something that you got dumped on, the, the tent was leaking and everything, and it's not fun in the moment, but later on you can look back at, on it and laugh with that person. Or if, if you're in college and you're studying and you're staying up late to do exams or do a group project, it helps having someone alongside you as motivation. Or if it's something really hard in life, suffering losses and sorrows, having people there is a uh, comfort because you're not alone. And especially if someone has experienced a similar struggle, it helps because they can relate to you. And so as believers, the, the Philippians, they could find encouragement in Christ because he has experienced similar sufferings and can relate with us. The second thing that Paul points us, he's drawing our attention to, a treasure that we have, is there's comfort from love. And I think this is comfort from the love of the Father. Here's another member of the Trinity. Because if you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in him, then God's disposition towards you is one of love. And if you've grown up in the church, if you've been a believer for a long time, I think we can take this for granted oftentimes. Yes, I never want to try to downplay how much God loves you. That's true. But we should also be reminded that if you are not in Christ, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then God, yes, he's a God of love, but he is looking on you as someone who is deserving of wrath and judgment. And that's because we have all done wrong things. We, we, have, we have sinned against God. We have chosen our way. We, we've stolen glory. We have not honored God as, as is his due. And because of that, we are separated from him. We are, we are sinners deserving of punishment. And that punishment is death. However, because of Christ, in God's great love, he sent his one and only son to us. So that through his sacrifice where he lived a perfect life and died on the cross, he paid that punishment for our sins of death. And he bore God's wrath in our place. If we place our faith in him, then we no longer bear God's judgment. If you have never done that, I would encourage you to think about it. That the God of the universe will enact justice for your sin. But you have the opportunity to place your faith in Christ. And through union with Christ, you are now adopted into God's family. And he looks on you as a son and a daughter with great love and great affection because he sees the righteousness of Christ 
covering you. So believers, be comforted by the love of the Father. There's a passage I want to read real quickly from 2 Corinthians 1 because it just combines this idea that, that God is a God of comfort and Christ can, can relate in our, in our sufferings. It's 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 7. And just listen how many times Paul writes the word comfort here. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So believer, know today, in the midst of struggles, in the midst of hardship, there is great encouragement from being with Christ and from knowing that you are loved by God the Father. Next, Paul then talks about saying that if you've ever experienced participation in the Spirit. And so we've seen we have a relationship with God the Son, God the Father, and now here's God the Holy Spirit. And what is participation in the Spirit? Again, it can mean a lot of things. Right? Ephesians 1 talks about that we are sealed in Christ with the Spirit. Romans 8 says that, that He is a Spirit of adoption. That's how we are now children of God. He intercedes for us in our prayers. Participation in the Spirit could be living out the fruits of the Spirit or living out in the gifts of the Spirit that you have been blessed with. But again, I think what Paul means here is that participation in the Spirit looks like a unified community of believers living together. And this, again, is because of the context that now Paul has, has shifted his focus from, from opposition and encouragement in Christ to now a disposition that we should have towards fellow believers. And it should be one of unity, that there is a unity and ability to relate to other believers on a deeper level than anything we can experience here on earth. Have you ever had those, those small world moments, right, where you meet someone that you went to the same school, or you're from the same hometown, or maybe you know someone in common, those are fun occurrences where there's like this instant camaraderie because you have a shared experience. And what Paul is pointing to is that in Christ, now that you have received the Holy Spirit, we have a divine, supernatural way that we relate to fellow believers. Right? It's no longer just, oh, we're from Columbia, South Carolina. It's now that you and I were dead in our sins. And one day, you and I God, the Holy Spirit, opened our eyes to the glory of the gospel. And then we, we, we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, now you and I are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And doesn't this bond us together? And now together with, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we strive side by side to live, manner, live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. What a treasure it is that we literally have a member of the Trinity living inside of us if you are a believer in Christ. And that unifies us. And I think that truth then moves us to have affection and sympathy to fellow believers. 
This is the last thing that Paul draws our attention to. That in, in the church, among believers, there should be affection and sympathy. And this phrase, literally translated, means bowels of mercy, like guts of mercy. It's an, it's an odd phrase. It's also used in Colossians 3, and there it's translated as compassionate hearts. But I'm drawing attention to it because true Christian affection, it's not just a putting up with someone or kind of liking somebody. And, and true Christian sympathy isn't just you know, a second-handed apology or an empty offering to pray for someone because they're struggling with something. But down to your core, in your heart, your very being, you are moved with this love towards others because we are one family in Christ. And likewise, now we, we, we can greatly show compassion and grace and mercy to those around us because of the treasures of mercy that we have received in Christ. So because of these things, what Paul is drawing our attention to, that there is encouragement in Christ in hardship, that there is love from the Father to be experienced, that as believers we participate in the Spirit and we love one another, because of these truths, now Paul turns and says, how then should we live? And even before he says that, he first says, complete my joy. As, as the, the Philippians are living in, in lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ, it brings him joy. And I think this is just showing his, his pastoral, his loving, his caring heart for this church. Right? As a parent rejoices in the growth and the successes of their children, Paul's joy is wrapped up in the growth and spiritual maturity of this church. And this is true of the pastors here. We want this heart, we have this heart, we want it to continue to grow for believers. That our joy is in the growth and spiritual maturity of King's Church. We, we want our church to continue to grow and enjoy Christ. We will magnify him and display him and hope that everyone here falls in love with Christ. And from that then we live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what does that look like? First, real briefly, in, in verse 2, Paul gives four quick commands for really this new mindset that we have as believers. Verse 2, he says that as believers, we should be of the same mind. We have the same love. We're in full accord with one another, and we have one mind. It's a lot of language that, that seems you know, kind of identical, but he's not saying that we should all think the exact same way. right? Church is not a hive mind where we just blindly follow things, and we're all obedient to the same things. There will be disagreements. But we want people to have different ideas, to like different things, to have different giftings. What this word mind means is not necessarily like your intellect, but really it's a, it's a mindset, it's an attitude set, it's a framework through which we view God, we view one another, and we view the world. And we want that to be aligned so that as we come together with our, with our different giftings, we are all striving towards the same goal. So what is this mindset? How, how should we be thinking as believers that then leads to action? This mindset comes from looking to Christ. We see his example in verses 5 through 8. Next week's passage is, is uh, chapter 2, 5 through 11, and we'll go really deep 
into the, the Christological nature of it. But here, really, to make sense of verse 3 and 4, we have to look to Christ. He's our foundation. He's our example for why, then, we should live in the way that Paul says in verses 3 through 4. So before we dive in and see how our lives are changed through union with Christ, we first need to look at Christ's example and have his mind for ourselves. So if you, if you still have Philippians 2 open, look down to verse 5 through 8 with me. Where Paul says, have this mind, right? So here it is. It's the same word that's used up above. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Again, this mindset that we are to have, what we're to think upon and see is the humility that is displayed here in Christ. And by looking at what he has done for us, that then should change the way we think and then live as believers. So as we step through verse 3 and 4, we're going to be referencing verses 5 through 8 as our foundation. So the first thing in verse 3 that Paul says to do, how our lives are changed from union with Christ, is that as believers we should do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And so before we just say, hey, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, Look to Christ. Verse 6, it says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not see glory as something to be seized or taken or stolen to elevate himself. He, He didn't feel the need to elevate his own name or seek his own ambition. And this is so often what we do. This is what the world says, right? You, you need to, to have yourself the best career. Make, make as much money as you can. In, in our day and age, right, we're so entitled to what we want, to what you think you deserve to have, and we seek our own name, our own glory, our own little kingdoms. But, but in verse 3, the word conceit, it literally is translated as vain glory, so in verse 6, when God, Christ had glory and, and he could have seized it to, to elevate himself, he didn't. Yet so often, I think, we seek after our own glory. And here we're told it's vain, it's empty, it's worthless. It will fade. So do not seek your own selfish ambition. Follow Christ's example. The second thing that Paul then encourages us to do is that in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. And again, let's first look to Christ. Verse 7, how did Christ look to other people and count them significant? In verse 7, it says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So Christ looked to others as more significant and was willing to humble himself to become a man and become a servant. A lot of translations have um, verse 3 translated as count others as better than yourselves. But I really think this, this word significant really fits the idea behind it. Because it's true 
that you're going to be better than other people at certain things. Christ certainly was better than all of us, right, in his glory, and even while he was here on earth. However, to count someone as more significant than yourself means that you are viewing them to be worthy of your time and service. Right? Counting others as more significant is to say that they are deserving of your work, of your service, of your mercy. And this, this idea of significance, right, it doesn't mean that you don't have any significance. You're not just continually downplaying yourself and, and putting others up. There's the famous quote that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Right? We still truly all have value. We're made in the image of God. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. All of human life has value. You're so loved that God gave his one and only son for you. But oftentimes we can, we can put ourselves on a different pedestal. Right? There's a sinful tendency to think that you're more special or entitled to getting your own way. It's a sinful pride that causes you to, to look down on others and build yourself up. I think a, a subtle example is you finding yourself just not wanting to hang out with someone because you just don't find them interesting. They, they just don't attain to your level. And in an extreme and, and terrible situation, this idea of, of feelings of superiority is what gives rise to racism, right? Of, of thinking that you are more deserving, you're more significant than other people. They're below you. And one time in college, uh, a guy for crew at Mississippi State, he once said that the degree to which you think you're better than someone is the degree to which you don't understand grace. Or in our, our context, that the degree to think that you're more significant or more deserving than someone else is the degree to which you don't understand the gospel. Because this new mindset, right, as we cast our minds to Christ and the cross, we see that we're on a level playing field. Before Christ, we're, we're dead in our sins. A dead body is no better than another dead body. We were all rebels. We were children of wrath. Yet in God's great mercy, he chose to send his son for us. So this realization that, that God has, has given you new life, nothing that you have done, it should humble us. Dwelling, thinking upon Christ should humble us to then be able to free us up to look to others and count them as more significant, to view them as worthy of our time and of our service. And so when we, when we have this mental posture, when we're able to view others as people who are worthy for us to work for, then we can begin to look to others' interests. This is what verse 4 says. That let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And again, before we, we dive into what that means for us, let's look to Christ and see his example. In verse 8, that Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ was willing to put the interests and the needs of, of us, of others, sinners, above his own desires all the way to the point of death. We see this struggle right in the Garden of Gethsemane where he asks the Father, Lord, let this cup pass from me. It's not, it's not in my interest to be crucified. However, he looked to our desperate need for a Savior 
And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, and for us, then, looking to others' interests means loving other people enough to give of ourselves. It's costly. It hurts. It takes time. It takes energy. It takes your resources. In some cases, it could take your very physical well-being. However, I think, right, being motivated by love, it, it nullifies all of those concerns. Think of a, a parent whose child is in danger. They don't once think about that water looks too cold or the kitchen's on fire and I might get burned. They run in there for the interest of their child to save them. These are extreme examples looking to Christ. But for ourselves, would we love those around us enough to tell them the gospel? Would you be willing to approach your coworker and have an awkward conversation because they're in need of a savior? Would, would you not worry about the fear of rejection because of the need people have for the gospel? Would you be willing to, to lay aside your comforts and, and your nice life to take the gospel to unreached people groups? And these are, these are big examples thinking towards the outsiders, but, but even amongst the church, we can also look to others' needs. Serving others, people behind the scenes, and I'll just say, I think we do this very well at King's. There are a lot of people here who week in and week out are serving. If you go to your, our sports night on a Tuesday night, you know that Lake is there early, opening the gym, sweeping the floor, setting up a volleyball net. McKenzie is, is scheduling people weekly to help with the sound so that we can hear everything, to have our slides ready to go. You think of Bowen after the Lord's Supper and other feral boys that they run around and they pick up the communion cups, just little things that help our church go. Alan faithfully picks up the offering every week, deposits it in our safe. You see Eric up on stage a lot, but you miss that every week he's leading a meeting to make sure that we're all on the same page for a worship service. Or, or about Heath, right, who behind the scenes, he's constantly following up and caring for Megan, our missionary who's overseas, knowing and, and communicating to her that we still have her back. We're holding the rope for her. We're praying for her. And there's countless other people here who are caring for the shut-ins, who are doing service behind the scenes. And you might not get recognized here today, you might not get recognized at all, but I hope you know that as you continue to, to strive and serve those around you, your Heavenly Father sees what is done in secret, and one day He will exalt and reward and acknowledge you. As we look to Christ's example for humility, we also can look to his, uh, his example of exaltation as a means of hope and joy in this life, in this struggle, as we seek to live lives worthy of the gospel. And so here is Christ's example in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2. Because, because Christ was humiliated, and went to death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. While we will never attain that level of exaltation, which we shouldn't, just as we I will never experience the depths of the humiliation that Christ did and the agony and suffering that he went through 
and the sacrifice that he was for us. We won't experience that. We still can see his example as something to provide hope for us, joy, motivation to continue to seek to serve others and to continue to seek to live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Man, it's an odd idea that exaltation comes through humility. God's economy is backwards. The way up is down. It's the opposite of what the world says. It's the opposite of what the prosperity gospel says. Right? We may never experience the good life here on earth. You may never be exalted. You may never be truly known. You might be forgotten. But we have this promise that in the life to come, God will recognize us and glorify us. And this hope of glory is a uniting and fearless motivation for us in life. It's how we can be fearless in the face of opposition. It's how we are humble in servitude, and it's how we can be self-denying for the benefit of others, even at a cost for ourselves, because we know that in all of our sufferings, all of our hardships, the Lord will reward us and acknowledge us for it. And this is kind of an odd concept. I don't think about it often enough. And sometimes it feels odd, thinking and being motivated to be recognized by God. But I just want to, in rapid succession, read a couple verses that highlight this, that truly those who are humble will one day be exalted. The first comes from Luke 14. It's the, the parable of going to a wedding feast, and, and Luke is saying, or Jesus is talking, that you should uh, sit in the, in the place, in the lowest place. He picks up in Luke 14, 10. So when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Also in Luke chapter 18, it's the parable of the Pharisee praying, and then there's that tax collector who's beating his chest and praying. Luke 18, 13, and 14, he says, But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Two more. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Peter writes and says, Humble yourselves, therefore... Because of humility, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And finally, Romans 8, 16 and 17, we've received the spirit of adoption. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So there truly is hope of glorification and exaltation through humility. we got to notice that this humility is genuine, right? The love and service of others should come from compassionate hearts, sympathy, and affection. We don't serve others to get something out of it. But as we continue to walk and strive together, we have hope and we can take rest and comfort that one day we will get the approval by the one whose approval really matters. I'd encourage you to not strive all the time to, to attain the world's praise, but work for the day when you will hear the well done, my good 
and faithful servant. I think that's what carries you through opposition. That hope that every tear will be wiped away, every suffering, every hardship will be worth it when compared with the eternal weight of glory to come. That really wraps it up, and I'm going to invite uh, the band back up and give a last point and a last uh, conclusion. And the last thing I want to talk about is drawing our attention back to the big idea where I said that Christian humility, again, it's modeled after Christ. We set our minds to Christ and see what he has done for us, and that's then how we live. So it's through Christian humility that leads to God-glorifying exaltation. And what's important is that the exaltation is God-glorifying. This is another reason how we have pure motives while seeking to serve others with the hope of future glorification. Because even when we are exalted and glorified, it is for ultimately for God's glory. In God's uh, divine providence, he is able to, to rescue, redeem, sanctify, and one day glorify sinners. And that's for our good and our benefit, but ultimately it's all for his glory. So this exaltation that we have hope in is all for God's glory. So finally, I hope that this week, as believers, we would make a concerted effort to seek the needs of others as Christ has met our most deep and dire need. Would we view our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters, with this sympathy and compassion and affection that we experience through the Spirit? Would we be moved by the need for the lost to deny our own self-interest and share the gospel with them? And finally, as we are living this way, would we be comforted that we have a loving, heavenly Father who sees our sacrifice and will one day exalt us in glory? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we first just thank you and praise you for Christ. Lord, his sacrifice, his example of humility, Lord, that he made a way for sinners to be reconciled to God. And Lord, today uh, we join what it says in verse 9 11, that we recognize him as Lord and Savior. God, that we bow down before him, Father, as ruler of all. God, would that take root when we dwell upon Christ, would that take hold of our minds, thinking of what Christ has done for us and his example. And Lord, would that then motivate us to live and serve others? Would our lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ because we live in humility as Christ humbled himself? Lord, it is in your precious name we pray. Amen.